Volume 1, Chapter 5 of Rob Roy. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mike Bloomfield. Rob Roy by Sir Walter Scott. Volume 1, Chapter 5. How melts my beating heart as I behold each lovely nymph, our island's boast and pride push on the generous steed that sweeps along or rough or smooth nor heeds the steepy hill nor falters in the extended vale below the chase i approached my native north for such i esteemed it with that enthusiasm which romantic and wild scenery inspires in the lovers of nature no longer interrupted by the babble of my companion I could now remark the difference which the country exhibited from that through which I had hitherto travelled. The streams now more properly deserved the name, for, instead of slumbering stagnant among reeds and willows, they brawled along beneath the shade of natural copsewood, were now hurried down declivities, and now purled more leisurely, but still in active motion, through little lonely valleys which, opening on the road from time to time seemed to invite the traveller to explore their recesses the cheviots rose before me in frowning majesty not indeed with the sublime variety of rock and cliff which characterizes mountains of the primary class but huge round-headed and clothed with a dark robe of russet gaining by their extent and desolate appearance an influence upon the imagination as a desert district possessing a character of its own. The abode of my father's, which I was now approaching, was situated in a glen or narrow valley, which ran up among those hills. Extensive estates, which once belonged to the family of Osbaldistone, had been long dissipated by the misfortunes or misconduct of my ancestors, but enough was still attached to the old mansion to give my uncle the title of a man of large property. This he employed, as I was given to understand by some inquiries which I made on the road, in maintaining the prodigal hospitality of a northern squire of the period, which he deemed essential to his family dignity. From the summit of an eminence I had already had a distant view of Osbaldistone Hall, a large and antiquated edifice peeping out from a druidical grove of huge oaks, and I was directing my course towards it, as straightly and as speedily as the windings of a very indifferent road would permit, when my horse, tired as he was, pricked up his ears at the enlivening notes of a pack of hounds in full cry, cheered by the occasional bursts of a French horn, which in those days was a constant accompaniment to the chase. I made no doubt that the pack was my uncle's, and drew up my horse with the purpose of suffering the hunters to pass without notice, aware that a hunting-field was not the proper scene to introduce myself to a keen sportsman, and determined when they had passed on to proceed to the mansion-house at my own pace, and there to await the return of the proprietor from his sport. I paused, therefore, on a rising ground, and, not unmoved by the sense of interest which that species of sylvan sport is so much calculated to inspire, although my mind was not at the moment very accessible to impressions of this nature, I expected with some eagerness the appearance of the huntsman. The fox, hard run and nearly spent, 
first made his appearance from the copse which clothed the right-hand side of the valley. His drooping brush, his soiled appearance, and jaded trot proclaimed his fate impending, and the carrion crow, which hovered over him, already considered poor Reynard as soon to be his prey. He crossed the stream which divides the little valley, and was dragging himself up a ravine on the other side of its wild banks, when the headmost hounds, followed by the rest of the pack in full cry, burst from the coppice, followed by the huntsman and three or four riders. The dogs pursued the trace of Reynard with unerring instinct, and the hunters followed with reckless haste, regardless of the broken and difficult nature of the ground. They were tall, stout young men, well-mounted, and dressed in green and red, the uniform of a sporting association, formed under the auspices of old Sir Hildebrand Osbaldistone. My cousins, thought I, as they swept past me. The next reflection was, what is my reception likely to be among these worthy successors of Nimrod? And how improbable is it that I, knowing little or nothing of rural sports, shall find myself at ease or happy in my uncle's family? A vision that passed me interrupted these reflections. It was a young lady, the loveliness of whose very striking features was enhanced by the animation of the chase and the glow of the exercise. Mounted on a beautiful horse, jet black, unless where he was flecked by spots of the snow-white foam which embossed his bridle. She wore, what was then somewhat unusual, a coat, vest, and hat, resembling those of a man, which fashion has since called a riding habit. The mode had been introduced while I was in France, and was perfectly new to me. Her long black hair streamed on the breeze, having in the hurry of the chase escaped from the ribbon which bound it. Some very broken ground, through which she guided her horse with the most admirable address and presence of mind, retarded her course and brought her closer to me than any of the other riders had passed. I had, therefore, a full view of her uncommonly fine face and person, to which an inexpressible charm was added by the wild gaiety of the scene and the romance of her singular dress and unexpected appearance. As she passed me, her horse made, in his impetuosity, an irregular movement just while, coming once more upon open ground, she was again putting him to his speed. It served as an apology for me to ride close up to her, as if to her assistance. There was, however, no cause for alarm. It was not a stumble, nor a false step, and if it had, the fair Amazon had too much self-possession to have been deranged by it. She thanked my good intentions, however, by a smile, and I felt encouraged to put my horse to the same pace and to keep in her immediate neighborhood. The clamor of whoop, dead, dead, and the corresponding flourish of the French horn soon announced to us that there was no more occasion for haste, since the chase was at a close. One of the young men whom we had seen approached us, waving the brush of the fox in triumph, as if to upbraid my fair companion. I see, she replied, I see, but make no noise about it. If Phoebe, she said, patting the neck of the beautiful animal on which she rode, had not got among the cliffs, you would have had little cause for boasting. They met as she spoke, and I observed them both look at me and converse a moment in an undertone the young lady apparently pressing the sportsman to do something which he declined shyly, and with a sort of sheepish sullenness. She instantly turned her horse's head towards me, 
saying, Well, well, Thorny, if you won't, I must, that's all. Sir, she continued, addressing me, I have been endeavouring to persuade this cultivated young gentleman to make inquiry of you whether, in the course of your travels in these parts, you have heard anything of a friend of ours, one Mr. Francis Osbaldistone, who has been for some days expected at Osbaldistone Hall. I was too happy to acknowledge myself to be the party inquired after, and to express my thanks for the obliging inquiries of the young lady. In that case, sir, she rejoined, as my kinsman's politeness seems to be still slumbering, you will permit me, though I suppose it is highly improper, to stand mistress of ceremonies, and to present to you young squire Thorncliffe Osbaldistone, your cousin, and Di Vernon, who has also the honor to be your accomplished cousin's poor kinswoman. There was a mixture of boldness, satire, and simplicity in the manner in which Miss Vernon pronounced these words. My knowledge of life was sufficient to enable me to take up a corresponding tone, as I expressed my gratitude to her for her condescension, and my extreme pleasure at having met with them. To say the truth, the compliment was so expressed that the lady might easily appropriate the greater share of it, for Thorncliffe seemed an errant country bumpkin, awkward, shy, and somewhat sulky withal. He shook hands with me, however and then intimated his intention of leaving me that he might help the huntsman and his brothers to couple up the hounds, a purpose which he rather communicated by way of information to Miss Vernon than as apology to me. "'There he goes,' said the young lady, following him with eyes in which disdain was admirably painted, the prince of grooms and cockfighters and blackguard horse-coursers, but there is not one of them to mend another. "'Have you read Markham?' said Miss Vernon. At whom, ma'am? I do not even remember the author's name. Oh, Lud, on what a strand are you wrecked, replied the young lady, a poor, forlorn, and ignorant stranger, unacquainted with the very Alcoran of the savage tribe whom you are come to reside among, never to have heard of Markham, the most celebrated author on farriery? Then I fear you are equally a stranger to the more modern names of Gibson and Bartlett? I am indeed, Miss Vernon. And do you not blush to own it? said Miss Vernon. Why, we must forswear your reliance. Then, I suppose, you can neither give a ball, nor a mash, nor a horn. I confess I trust all these matters to an ostler, or to my groom. Incredible carelessness! And you cannot shoe a horse, or cut his mane and tail, or worm a dog, or crop his ears, or cut his dew-claws, or reclaim a hawk, or give him his casting-stones, or direct his diet when he is sealed, or— to sum up my insignificance in one word, replied I, I am profoundly ignorant in all these rural accomplishments. Then in the name of heaven, Mr. Francis Osbaldistone, what can you do? Very little to the purpose, Miss Vernon. Something, however, I can pretend to. When my groom has dressed my horse, I can ride him. And when my hawk is in the field, I can fly him. Can you do this? said the young lady, putting her horse to a canter. There was a sort of rude overgrown fence crossed the path before us, with a gate composed of pieces of wood rough from the forest. I was about to move forward to open it, when Miss Vernon cleared the obstruction at a flying leap. I was bound in point of honor to follow, and was in a moment again at her side. There are hopes of you yet, she said. I was afraid you had been a very degenerate, Osbaldistone. But what on earth brings you to Cub Castle? For so the neighbors have christened this hunting hall of ours. 
You might have stayed away, I suppose, if you would. I felt I was by this time on a very intimate footing with my beautiful apparition, and therefore replied in a confidential undertone, Indeed, my dear Miss Vernon, I might have considered it as a sacrifice to be a temporary resident in Osbaldistone Hall, the inmates being such as you describe them. But I am convinced there is one exception that will make amends for all deficiencies. Oh, you mean rashly, said Miss Vernon. Indeed I do not. I was thinking, forgive me, of some person much nearer me. I suppose it would be proper not to understand your civility, but that is not my way. I don't make a courtesy for it because I am sitting on horseback, but seriously I deserve your exception, for I am the only conversable being about the hall, except the old priest and Rashley. And who is Rashley, for heaven's sake? Rashley is one who would fain have everyone like him for his own sake. He is Sir Hildebrand's youngest son, about your own age, but not so, not well-looking, in short. But nature has given him a mouthful of common sense, and the priest has added a bushelful of learning. He is what we call a very clever man in this country, where clever men are scarce. Bred to the church, but in no hurry to take orders. To the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church? What church else? said the young lady. But I forgot. They told me you are a heretic. Is that true, Mr. Osbaldistone? I must not deny the charge. And yet you have been abroad, and in Catholic countries, for nearly four years. You have seen convents? Often, but I have not seen much in them which recommended the Catholic religion. Are not the inhabitants happy? Some are unquestionably so, whom either a profound sense of devotion, or an experience of the persecutions and misfortunes of the world, or a natural apathy of temper has led into retirement. Those who have adopted a life of seclusion from sudden and overstrained enthusiasm, or in hasty resentment of some disappointment or mortification, are very miserable. The quickness of sensation soon returns, and like the wilder animals in a menagerie, they are restless under confinement, while others muse or fatten in cells of no larger dimensions than theirs. And what, continued Miss Vernon, becomes of those victims who are condemned to a convent by the will of others? What do they resemble? Especially, what do they resemble if they are born to enjoy life and feel its blessings? They are like imprisoned singing birds, replied I, condemned to wear out their lives in confinement, which they try to beguile by the exercise of accomplishments which would have adorned society had they been left at large. I shall be, returned Miss Vernon, that is, said she, correcting herself, I should be rather like the wild hawk who, barred the free exercise of his soar through heaven, will dash himself to pieces against the bars of his cage. But to return to Rashley, said she in a more lively tone, you will think him the pleasantest man you ever saw in your life, Mr. Osbaldistone, that is, for a week at least. If he could find out a blind mistress, never man would be so secure of conquest, but the eye breaks the spell that enchants the ear. But here we are, in the court of the old hall, which looks as wild and old-fashioned as any of its inmates. There is no great toilet kept at Osbaldistone Hall, you must know. But I must take off these things, they are so unpleasantly warm, and the hat hurts my forehead too, continued the lively girl, taking it off and shaking down a profusion of sable ringlets, which, half laughing, half blushing, she separated with her white slender fingers, in order to clear them away from her beautiful face and piercing hazel eyes. 
If there was any coquetry in the action, it was well disguised by the careless indifference of her manner. I could not help saying that, judging of the family from what I saw, I should suppose the toilet a very unnecessary care. That's very politely said, though perhaps I ought not to understand in what sense it was meant, replied Miss Vernon, but you will see a better apology for a little negligence when you meet the Orsons you are to live amongst, whose forms no toilet could improve. But as I said before, the old dinner-bell will clang, or rather clank, in a few minutes. It cracked of its own accord on the day of the landing of King Willie, and my uncle, respecting its prophetic talent, would never permit it to be mended. So do you hold my palfrey, like a duteous knight, until I send some more humble squire to relieve you of the charge? She threw me the rein as if we had been acquainted from our childhood, jumped from her saddle, tripped across the courtyard, and entered at a side door, leaving me in admiration of her beauty, and astonished with the over-frankness of her manners, which seemed the more extraordinary at a time when the dictates of politeness, flowing from the court of the grand monarch Louis the Fourteenth prescribed to the fair sex an unusual severity of decorum. I was left awkwardly enough stationed in the centre of the court of the old hall, mounted on one horse and holding another in my hand. The building afforded little to interest a stranger, had I been disposed to consider it attentively. The sides of the quadrangle were of various architecture, and with their stone-shafted, latticed windows, projecting turrets and massive architraves, resembled the inside of a convent or of one of the older and less splendid colleges of Oxford. I called for a domestic, but was for some time totally unattended to, which was the more provoking, as I could perceive I was the object of curiosity to several servants, both male and female, from different parts of the building, who popped out their heads and withdrew them like rabbits in a warren before I could make a direct appeal to the attention of any individual. The return of the huntsman and hounds relieved me from my embarrassment, and with some difficulty I got one down to relieve me of the charge of the horses, and another stupid boor to guide me to the presence of Sir Hildebrand. This service he performed with much such grace and good will, as a peasant who is compelled to act as guide to a hostile patrol, and in the same manner I was obliged to guard against his deserting me in the labyrinth of low vaulted passage which conducted to Stun Hall, as he called it, where I was to be introduced to the gracious presence of my uncle. We did, however, at length reach a long vaulted room, floored with stone, where a range of oaken tables of a weight and size too massive ever to be moved aside were already covered for dinner. This venerable apartment, which had witnessed the feasts of several generations of the Osbaldistone family, bore also evidence of their success in field sports. Huge antlers of deer, which might have been trophies of the hunting of Chevy Chase, were ranged around the walls, interspersed with the stuffed skins of badgers, otters, martens, and other animals of the chase. Amidst some remnants of old armor which had perhaps served against the Scotch, hung the more valued weapons of sylvan war, crossbows, guns of various device and construction, nets, fishing rods, otter spears, hunting poles, with many other singular devices and engines for taking or killing game. A few old pictures, dimmed with smoke and stained with March beer, hung on the walls, representing knights and ladies honored, doubtless, and renowned in their day, those frowning fearfully from huge bushes of wig and of beard, 
and these looking delightfully with all their might at the roses which they brandished in their hands. I had just time to give a glance at these matters, when about twelve blue-coated servants burst into the hall with much tumult and talk, each rather employed in directing his comrades than in discharging his own duty. Some brought blocks and billets to the fire, which roared, blazed, and ascended half in smoke, half in flame, up a huge tunnel with an opening wide enough to accommodate a stone seat within its ample vault, and which was fronted, by way of chimney-piece, with a huge piece of heavy architecture, where the monsters of heraldry, embodied by the art of some Northumbrian chisel, grinned and ramped in red freestone, now japanned by the smoke of centuries. Others of these old-fashioned serving-men bore huge smoking dishes, loaded with substantial fare. Others brought in cups, flagons, bottles, yea, barrels of liquor, all tramped, kicked, plunged, shouldered, and jostled, doing as little service with as much tumult as could well be imagined. At length, while the dinner was, after various efforts, in the act of being arranged upon the board, the clamor much of men and dogs, the cracking of whips calculated for the intimidation of the latter, voices loud and high, steps which, impressed by the heavy-heeled boots of the period, clattered like those in the statue of the Festin de Pierre, announced the arrival of those for whose benefit the preparations were made. The hubbub among the servants rather increased than diminished as this crisis approached. Some called to make haste, others to take time, some exhorted to stand out of the way and make room for Sir Hildebrand and the young squires, some to close round the table and be in the way, some bawled to open, some to shut, a pair of folding doors which divided the hall from a sort of gallery, as I afterwards learned, or withdrawing room, fitted up with black wainscot. Opened the doors were at length, and in rushed curs and men, eight dogs, the domestic chaplain, the village doctor, my six cousins, and my uncle. End of Volume 1, Chapter 5 Recording by Mike Bloomfield, San Francisco, California